Hello. Thanks for listening to our Fusion Sermon Podcast. Fusion is a worshiping community within Hardawike Ministries. We gather at 1030 a.m. in the Red Brick Church Building on the Hardawike campus on the corner of 160th and Lakewood in Holland, Michigan. We invite you to join us in person when you are able. To learn more about our Fusion community and Hardawike Ministries, please visit hardawike.com. Uh, let's jump in. We are, we are continuing to work our way through uh, a sermon series, Believe. We've started to consider some of the core truths of Scripture. What, is, what, is, what does Scripture teach about? What does it mean to think like Jesus? We've already answered several questions, or I really shouldn't say answer, but we considered several questions around who is God, uh, what is salvation, what is the Bible. A few weeks ago, we, we looked at who am I, like who, like who are we as, as those who are found in Jesus Christ, this core part of our vision. Um, we kind of broadened that last week with Pastor Daryl, who did a wonderful job. Uh, who, is, who are we as the church? So who am I in Christ, but who are we as the church? And today we're actually going to kind of broaden that focus out a little more and ask the question of, of who, who, who is the human uh, species? Who is, what is humanity? Like, who are we as, as people, as the entire human species? What does the Bible say about humanity? Now, in order to consider that question, we're going to be using multiple passages this morning. We're going to really be anchored uh, in Genesis 1, Genesis 3, Genesis 4. You're going to see that. Uh, but for our scripture reading this morning, we're going to be in Matthew 18, verses 1 through 14. This is uh, some teaching from Jesus. And as we read this, uh, just to give you a heads up, like we're going to read this, you're going to be like, how is that related to this question of who is humanity? But I trust uh, that by the end you're going to see how it, 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 these teachings of Jesus kind of beautifully help us wrestle with what do the scriptures tell us about humanity. And so we're going to read Matthew 18 verses 1 through 14. If you're willing, if you're able, I invite you to stand as we honor God and recognize that God is speaking to us through his word by the power of the spirit. We'll be starting at verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He, that is Jesus, called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not lead the, leave the 99 on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, Truly, I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did wander off. 
In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's continue our worship by going to our Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for your word. And once again, God, we thank you that these words, these teachings of Jesus, your son, our Lord, are preserved by the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would continue to teach and to speak into our lives by the, by the word and the work of the Spirit so that in hearing from you, in leaning into the truth that your scriptures teach, Lord, that we would be challenged, that we would be encouraged, and in all things, Lord, that you would continue this work of forming us into the likeness of Jesus Christ so we can follow you into this world. We pray this in Christ's name. God's people say together, amen. If you turn on the evening news or if you open the newspaper or maybe for most of us it's open your favorite news app, uh, you will quickly be inundated with dozens of stories from around the world. Once in a while you'll find a positive story, a, a cute or a, a funny little news story that will sneak its way through. but. The vast majority, at least seems, of the stories that come into our news feed are not all that positive. Which reminds me of back in 2020. Do you, do you remember uh, John Krasinski, uh, better known as Jim Halpert? Um, anyone, that's Jim Halpert, right? Anyway, Office fans. Uh, but John Krasinski, during 2020, uh, started this uh, YouTube show from his living room called Some Good News. And the whole concept of it was, it, it was just tough and we weren't hearing any good news. He's like, can we just get some good news? And, uh, and, it, and it gained huge popularity and it only lasted about eight episodes. But I don't know, like I, I'm watching the news today and I'm like, can we get some good news? Like I, I kind of wish he'd restart that thing or, 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 or something because the reality is when, when we open our news app or when we, when we watch the evening news, mostly what we see are the, the atrocities and ongoing costs of wars in our world. And the cost of those wars disproportionately seems to be endured by innocent civilians. When we open the news apps, we see dysfunction, we see immaturity and contempt here at home in Washington and elsewhere. We hear countless stories of escalating violence again this week. Lord, have mercy. We hear, rampant, we, we hear stories of rampant drug addiction and hate crimes and, 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 and burglary and vandalism that's gone wild and unchecked rage that's just filling our feeds. And <sighs> Certainly, I think it's important to acknowledge that it's, it's good to be informed. It's good to know what's going on in our world. And at the same time, I don't know about you, but I think it's also important to acknowledge that consuming, or, or maybe the better word is over-consuming, some of these stories can just trigger like anxiety, can trigger fear in us, and, and studies even show that it's just not good for our mental health. So this is just a side note, uh, but I would just encourage us all to just find that balance, stay informed, know what's going on, and you know, don't become over-consumed. And also look for the good, look for the beauty that is present in this world and in our lives. That's just a side note. 
But I bring up kind of kind of the, 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 the news and the things that we see going on in the world because when we, when we take a look at what's happening in our world, in our country, it revives kind of this age-old question about who we are as a species. This question, are, are people basically good or bad? Are, are, is humanity fundamentally good or evil? Are, are some people good? Are others bad? Are, and how do we even measure some of the, the answers to these questions, right? These are, these are, this is a question that philosophers and psychologists and, and theologians have wrestled with for centuries. Are people basically good or bad, fundamentally good or evil? We got like 20 minutes, and I'm sure we're going to find the answer, okay? I say that tongue-in-cheek. But we're going to wrestle with that question, those questions this morning. We're going to explore both possibilities. We'll just kind of live in, are, are people bad? Are people good? We'll give some evidence for and against, and by the end, we're going to see where we land as we use the Bible as our lens. What I want to do to start is I want to begin with, with considering the negative to that question. Uh, that, and, and explore the possibility. Are people just fundamentally bad or evil even? Now that requires some kind of moral framework that we can define what is good and what is bad. And as Christians, we have a moral framework. We have a, in the faith, we have a moral framework for what is good and what is bad, or at least the fact that there is good and there is evil in this world. And so let's just explore. Are we evil? Are, are, are humans, are people bad? Now again, I, Evil's on the, on, the, on the screen there. I'm not sure how many Christians would use the language of evil. I don't know if, we, if there, there's many who would say that outright. Uh, but instead, I think theologians and Christians would use language around sin, right? In fact, there are orthodox doctrines around sin. We would use terms like original sin, right? You've heard that. We'll talk a little bit about that. Or if you go a little more specifically in kind of our reform stream of the Christian faith, you may have heard of, of a doctrine of total depravity. Does that sound familiar? By the way, uh, when, when, when you hear total depravity, I think actually most often total depravity is misinterpreted. And, and we think total depravity, like humanity is just totally depraved. And we think uh, the, the, the misinterpretation is that people are just completely and utterly depraved. And, and apart from the spirit, we are just absolutely incapable of doing any good thing at any singular time. I found this quote from Cornelius Plantinga uh, in his book, A Place to Stand. I think it's helpful just to clarify that uh, really quickly. Total depravity, he writes, refers then not to every feature of every act a person does, but rather to the broad scope or sweep of sin. Sin has gotten into every department of our lives. No area is exempt. I think this is helpful. It's not that every act is rotten through and through. It is rather that even our best acts are spoiled and marred. So it's not that those who are not in Christ can't do anything good. Like We, we, we understand that that's not what that means because we witness it, but, but that there is this reality of sin that has infiltrated every part of our lives in some way, big or small. Anyway, there's plenty of support for this idea of, of original sin, and there's evidence in the world. Let's begin by just looking at some of the biblical support. In the book of Genesis, uh, it doesn't take long. The third chapter in the first book of the Bible, Genesis 3, we are introduced to this idea of sin. It's the narrative of how sin entered into the world. Adam and Eve, we, in Adam and Eve, we see this broader pattern of sin that's repeated throughout the generations. Uh, most notably in, in their children, Cain and Abel, where Cain murders his brother Abel in Genesis 4. Uh, 
This is what we refer to as original sin that's been passed down throughout all humanity. Sin that can be summed up, as one commentator kind of summed up these two stories, as rebellion and alienation. We think about sin. What is sin? Sin is either a rebellion against God or an alienation, a running away from God. First, we see it in Adam and Eve who rebel against God and God's good order to preserve life, and then followed by Cain. For Adam and Eve, they rebel against God by eating from the fruit that God commanded them not to eat from, right? You're familiar with the story? And we're kind of like, well, what's the big deal with that? Uh, We'll go to the next chapter. Cain rebels against God by taking the life of his younger brother, Abel. We're like, okay, that's rebellion, right? And not just rebellion, but what happens after that? For Adam and Eve, they alienate themselves from God. They flee from God. They, they experience shame for the first time and understand that they're in the, the nakedness, right? And so they hide from God in the garden. They flee from God, trying to hide from God in the garden. And Cain flees and is left after murdering his brother to wander the earth. So rebellion and alienation, this is, what we, this is the start of original sin that is passed down through all humanity. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul confirms what has happened in Romans 5, 1 Corinthians 15. Let me just read some of those. Romans 5, we read this. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. Similarly, in 1 Corinthians 15, talking about the sin that entered through Adam and Eve, for since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. And then to sum it up, Romans 3, a well-known verse, Paul writes this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The scriptures from page I don't know what page Genesis 3 is, but from from early on, from Genesis to Revelation tells us, is clear that sin is real. And sin is something that impacts every human heart and human soul who has ever walked the face of the earth with one exception, and that exception is Jesus Christ. And you don't have to look far to see the evidence. As we mentioned at the start, you just... Turn on the news. Just open a news app. Friends, we can't bury our heads deep enough in the sand and to pretend to ignore the reality and presence of evil in our world. We live in a world that has been corrupted, that has been polluted by something, right? That leads to what we see in the news on this broad scale, but not just on the news, what we see in our own hearts, hopefully on a smaller scale. And we call that something that we see every day. We, we, we have a name. We call it sin, right? And yet, that can't be the whole story. Let me just humbly suggest that, that if, if, if this is our only framework, or even our loudest, most dominant framework and lens through which we view the world and humanity... If we simply answer the question, are, are all people basically bad or fundamentally evil? And we say, yes, they're, they're bad, all people are evil, then, then we're missing something fundamental about what the scriptures also teach about humanity. And this kind, of, this kind of one-sided view becomes problematic, and we see it actually playing out in our world as well. Because when people are, are dehumanized, right, and we see this in our world, 
When other people are stripped of value and worth, and in, from, in secular language we'd say that'd be dehumanizing, right? When people groups are labeled things other than human beings, like when, we, when people are labeled dogs, or when people are labeled demons or evil, when they lose their humanity, and they're no longer human beings before us, then all restraint is off the table. And when someone's no longer a human being of, of worth and value, then, then anything that is done to them is justifiable. And we see that problem playing out in our world throughout human history. We're going to talk about the theology of that in just a bit. But I think this is actually where Matthew 18, Jesus' teaching in Matthew 18 actually helps us because, because Matthew 18 brings some clarity in this teaching uh, right about, around, around humanity. Because what does Jesus do at the beginning of this teaching? Did you, did you catch what happens before he starts teaching? He takes a child, a small child. Uh, the Greek there is, is, is a toddler or maybe even an infant. So like a very young child and places the child in the midst of this, this group of disciples. And he begins to teach with this child right there in their midst. And Jesus says, you want to be part of the kingdom of heaven? Become like a child. Welcome children. And when you welcome children, you welcome me. Now, in that context, at that time, children had the lowest of status in that society. And so what Jesus is doing here, his main point is to teach humility because the the disciples are asking this question, well, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? And the disciples are jockeying for position in the kingdom of heaven, which we understand is, is just rather silly. And the kingdom of God is upside down from the standards of this world, right? We understand that. But as I was just reflecting on this, this this placing a child in their midst and being reminded of of children, for us, 2,000 years later, when we see children, and it doesn't matter if if we're Christians or atheists or or Jewish or Muslim, whatever it is, when, when most of humanity sees a child, we see our shared humanity. Because it's in children that we we see innocence. It's in our children that we see this kind, of, this kind of purity and this innocence. Like, all children are valuable, and, and most people on this earth can agree with that, right? And so when we hear news stories of violence being done against children, and it doesn't matter what, where that child is from, whether from the, from the Ukraine or Russia or Palestine or Israel, it, it doesn't matter. Because when that happens, when violence is done against a child, we're repulsed because children remind us that all of human life is valuable. Because children remind us of innocence and goodness and that all people matter. Children remind us that evil, that, that evil cannot be the whole story on humanity. And so let's continue by considering the positive option. Well, well, if, if all people are evil can't tell the whole story, well, well let's, let's explore all people are good. This is one of the foundational principles of, of modern secular humanism. Like humanism is about uh, this goodness of humanity. Like it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a philosophy that emphasizes the potential value and goodness of human beings. It believes we, we hold the answers to solving many or most of our problems if we can only just tap into or return to that human decency and goodness that is in each and every one of us. There's French philosophers who would agree, who maybe started this. There's other psychological studies that would also kind of affirm this standpoint that humans at our deepest level were good. In fact, I came across an article uh, from uh, 2018, and the article was titled, Breaking News Alert! People are inherently good and nonviolent. 
the author continues to write, it's easier to recognize this fact when you think of children. Without mitigating factors, their innate goodness would not erode with age, but goodness is not the uh, sole virtue of the young. And this, this article goes on to just kind of give this imaginary scenario uh, where imagine you're at a restaurant and, and there's, a, there's a stranger at the table next to you and the, that stranger has a small child sitting in a high chair and the stranger leaves for a brief second and, and all of a sudden you notice that that high chair is about to tip over. Would you stop that young child, that, that infant or that baby from tipping over in a high chair? That's the question. And what's the answer? Yes. Please say yes, right? <laughs> yes. And the study goes on to say, well, well don't you think most people would, would save that child from falling over? And I, and I say, yeah, I think so. I mean, I hope so, right? Well, I think they're onto something, but what, is, what does the Bible say? What is, what is the theological response? And let's give some biblical evidence and support for, for what we might say is goodness, right? Here the Bible and Christian theologians would use the word good, but in a different sense. Uh, from a Christian or a theological perspective, we wouldn't necessarily use good from a moral perspective. In other words, we would not say that left to their own devices, generally human beings are moral creatures, though I think we would acknowledge that there's, there's a shared moral compass, there's a, there's a shared uh, intuitiveness of like a conscience, right, a human conscience, right? But I think we would use this term good, and when we would say that humans are good, we would speak in terms of worth and value. You catching the difference? Uh, maybe not so much in the moral category, but, but that all people are good as far as worth and value. What, what secular language would say, like, our shared humanity. We can embrace that. Like, there's a shared humanity, right? Here's, here's something that maybe, I think you knew this, but before Genesis 3 and 4, there's Genesis 1. Yeah, yeah, we knew that, right? Okay. Uh, in, in, the cre and there, in Genesis 1, we have the creation account, right? And in the creation account, there's this rhythm and this cadence to creation. It's on the screen. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the, the first day, the second day. The, there's this rhythm that's consistent throughout the creation account in chapter 1 of the book of Genesis. And this rhythm continues until after God creates humankind, male and female, he creates humankind on the sixth day, and after God creates male and female, humankind, what does he say? It was very good. Very good. Look a little closer. When God creates humankind, we read in Genesis 1 verse 27, it's on the screen, so God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So Genesis 1, the first book of the, 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 the scriptures Genesis 1 teaches that every single person who's ever lived has been created in the image of God. What does that mean? It means that every single human being has, is wor has worth and value, but, not but infinite worth and value. Why? Because that worth and value is found in the one who is infinite, the one who has created all that we see and know. We bear the image of God. And so if you just kind of scan around this room or look anywhere on planet Earth and you see human beings, that person reflects something of God. And so in a sense, when we, when we talk about original sin, we, we can acknowledge that, but there's also this original goodness that is found in every single living person on planet Earth. 
Pastor theologian Sam Albury says it this way in a Bible study that came out a couple years ago. He says this, if we realize that all of us have been created in the image of God, then anybody I meet, anybody I encounter, however different they may be from me, I'm recognizing something of God in them. It means if I love God, I will love his image. I will see that image and love that image in every pair of human eyes that looks back at me. All people bear the image of God, and so it seems the Bible holds some teaching points to understand that, that, that there's a goodness in all of humanity. And yet, just like the first part isn't the whole story, I, I don't know if this can be the whole story, right? Just from where we started, we cannot... That cannot be the only framework. That can't be the only lens through which we see and understand humanity. Yes, goodness in terms of, of infinite value and worth, image bearers, right? But we also cannot ignore the reality and gravity of sin in this world. Because when we, when we lack the framework of an understanding of sin in this world, we're going to come up short in understanding the world around us. If we just believe that all people will naturally do the moral and decent and good thing when all other negative influences or authorities are removed from their lives, that cannot tell the whole story of what we see and witness, not only in our world today, but throughout human history. I mean, certainly institutions and governments can be corrupt, but simply removing them does not lead to some utopian society. In fact, oftentimes human history will show that it leads to the opposite. Because sin is still a reality. And sin at its core is constantly at work turning the human heart inward towards self-preservation, self-protection, self-gratification, self-satisfaction. And that inward move of sin comes even at the expense of others so often. We call that sin. In fact, if we continue reading in Matthew 18, verses 6 through 9... Uh, Jesus' teaching here, we immediately see how serious Jesus takes sin. Right, Jesus says, if you, cause one of, if you cause one of these little ones to stumble, literally the Greek there for stumble is to, to like set a trap. Like if you set a trap for one of these little kids, it would be better for you to have a millstone hung around your neck and be thrown into the sea. In fact, Jesus says, sin is so serious that it would be better to maim your body, cut off a limb or gouge out an eye to avoid sin. Now, there's some hyperbolic language here, like don't actually do those things. Um, but I think we get the point. Jesus would say sin is real. Sin is a problem, a serious problem that impacts every single human heart. So again, how would we answer this fundamental question about our species? Are people basically good or bad? Are people fundamentally good or evil? How do we answer that? Well, maybe we might say yes, kind of both, right? And we would maybe answer both yes, acknowledging our shared goodness or value and worth grounded in the image of God, while also acknowledging the very real and tangible impact of sin in our world and in our own hearts. Maybe we'd answer that way. Maybe we'd just say, well, no, not really either, and we just simply recognize that neither of those categories can fully capture the complexity that is the human species. Maybe those two answers are the same answer in some way. How do we answer this question? 
Well, let me suggest that I think the rest of Jesus' teaching, Matthew 18, verses 10 through 14, actually help us offer, a, I would suggest, a better response. Are all people basically good or bad, fundamentally good or evil? What if the best answer, the better answer, is to say that maybe all people are fundamentally just something different altogether? Let's read again what Jesus says. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. This child is still in their midst, right? For I tell you that there are angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. Then Jesus continues, what do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go to look for the one that had wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. Are all people basically good or bad, fundamentally good or evil? Well, what if the better, what if the best response to this question is simply this, that all people fundamentally are loved by God? In fact, this teaching and other teachings of Jesus remind us that humanity, all of humanity is so loved by God that our good shepherd, Jesus Christ, left heaven, stepped down into this broken world in order to save lost and broken and, yes, sinful sheep like you and me. And it cost him his very life. But that's how much our Lord Jesus loves each of us. In fact, in this parable, Jesus seems to be suggesting that he would have done it for you even if you were the only one who was lost. That's how much you are loved. That's how much you are valued. And I think it's the one answer to that question that has space to both hold the reality of sin and brokenness that we see in this world, as well as this reality that we bear the image of God, that we are of an infinite worth and value in this way, goodness, very good of every human soul who bear the image of God, that this answer holds both of these up as true and good. To close, author, campus minister, Rachel Gilson, says it beautifully in this way, and I'm just gonna read her quote. She says, because every person is made in the image of God, every person has equal dignity and equal value. That has thousands of implications for community. But one very fundamental one is that there is not a single person alive that is unworthy of my time and attention. I think the second implication of that, one that's important and astounding, is there's not a single person alive who God isn't fervently after. He is jealous for his image. And so whether that person is inside the church or outside the church, he desires them. We see that he pursues sinners. He comes to save the lost. Or here in John chapter three, for God so loved the world, so loved the world, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. You join me in a word of prayer.
Lord God, we thank you for your love. We thank you, Lord, that our worst moment does not define who we are. And at the same time, Lord, our best moment doesn't primarily define who we are. But Lord, you are the one who defines who we are. Lord, as we think about the implications of this reality of, of not only who we are, but who every person on this planet is, as one who's been created in the image of God, of infinite worth, and as we wrestle with the things we hear, the things we read about. But Lord, if we're more honest, when we look inside our own hearts and we see our mixed motivations and our own selfishness, Lord, we can hold these things together and recognize that what's more true than either of those things is that we are loved. And we are loved so much that the good news of the gospel teaches us that, Lord Jesus, that you would step into our brokenness, that you would take the, the, the weight of sin and even death upon yourself so that we might be rescued and set free. This is the good news of the gospel. Next week, Lord, we're going to think about the implications. What does this mean in our lives and how we treat other people and how we live as followers of Jesus Christ? But Lord, today, remind us once again that we are loved. And not only are we loved, but the person across the aisle is loved by you. That each and every person, when, when our anger begins to rise, Lord, each and every person, even our enemies, are ones who bear the image of God. Lord, that is a challenge to the heart. But remind us once again of who we are. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. To learn how to get involved in our Fusion community or how to support Hardawike Ministries, please visit us at hardawike.com.